Hi, I'm Chris Waddell. Every week we do a Q&A with interesting and accomplished members of the adaptive community to find how they persevered, how they innovated, how they built communities, and how they found solutions. Welcome to the Name Tags Chat Podcast. Welcome to our Wednesday Name Tags Chat. We are here with Noah Elliott. Noah is a gold and bronze medalist from Pyeongchang in 2018 in snowboarding. So gold in snowboard cross and a bronze in the banked slalom. And this is this is awesome. He's a, a an above the knee amputee in a skis on a snowboard. Uh, so I guess I mean we've got to go back a little bit, right? Noah, can we can we go back like when you were 15? That was a fairly big year. What what happened when you were 15? Yeah, absolutely. Well, number one, um, thank you guys for giving me the opportunity to be on here. Um, I also wanted to uh, correct a little bit. I won the gold and the bank slalom, and I won the bronze and the snowboard cross. Uh, Sorry, backwards. Backwards, all good. Um, But yeah, absolutely. Thank you guys so much for giving me the opportunity to come on here, and uh, it's great to see you, Chris. Uh, So, you know, 15 years old, Noah, man, it was a lot of things were changing, and a lot of things were happening at that time in my life. Uh, outside of just being a normal kid um, in high school, um, to skateboarding, to trying to chase these dreams of becoming a semi-pro skater um, and becoming a pro, to all of a sudden getting ready to find out that my life was going to be changed forever. And this was in St. Louis, right? So you grew up in St. Louis as a skateboarder. And this, and is this like you'd been skateboarding forever? And what were your events in skateboarding? Yeah. So, you know, I started skateboarding when I was eight years old and I, I remember the first time I ever seen a skateboard, like it was yesterday. I had a neighbor who skateboarded and he would skate down. We lived on a hill and I lived on Vine street. And so my, my house was down here. There was a Creek bed and the high school was up here. And I seen him skateboarding down the hill, doing all these turns and how cool was it? I thought it's like, Oh my God. And he gets to the, um, to my driveway, kicks the board up, grabs it. And he's like, walking over to go inside his house. And I had to ask him, I said, what's that? And he's like, it's a skateboard. So for the next couple of months, I begged my mom, let me get a skateboard. Let me get a skateboard. Um, so and I started when I was like, what's that? How old were you then? So I was eight years old. Um, so I was eight years old and I fell in love with skateboarding. I got a skateboard and uh, yeah, by the time I was 14, I was on my way to becoming a professional for sure. I was uh, one of the best skaters in my area. And I even had some local companies talking to me about maybe some sponsorships. And in which events were you doing like half pipe? Were you doing, uh, what were you doing? So I was just doing street skating. Um, so that's kind of what I was going for is trying to become a street professional skater. Is skateboarding something where you can go pro at that young an age? Absolutely. And I think, you know, back then it was crazy because, uh, it was more becoming recognized as something that was definitely possible. Uh, being that young and becoming a pro and it was really cool because nowadays it's like not uncommon to see like these skaters that are 12 13 years old that are going pro and are out there and competing in x games and everything else so um, it's inspiring man and it's super cool to see all these like little kids out there you know giving it their best and shredding wow so so you were ready to go and and parents were completely on board or mother was completely on board with you with you following this dream uh, they, you know, my mom was always go support it, do it. You know, you love it. You're good at it. Have fun with it. 
my stepdad was always like, you know, skateboarding is only going to last so long. You know, I'm a construction worker. You might want to look at getting an actual job when you're older. And for me, I knew it was only a matter of time. And I knew in a couple more years that I could definitely be um, a pro skater if I, you know, went and took my avenues the right way. Um, so for me, it was just an opportunity to continue doing what I love and compete doing it. So um, that's what I was working towards. Nice. And what, so, so then what happened? So you're 14 years old. So, so you must've been a pretty cool guy as well. Were you a cool guy as far as like skateboarding that the women liked you or the girls at that point or how you, you were doing okay, I'm assuming. I mean, I like to think so. I like to think I was doing <laughs> okay. Um, I, you know, it was crazy because around that same time, not only was I, you know, trying to chase these dreams, but I'd also been seeing a girl for uh, a couple years at that point. And around that same time, you know, I was like, okay, found out uh, my girlfriend at the time was pregnant. We decided, wow, okay, this is huge. Not only are we really young, but like, what are we going to do? we decided that the best thing to do was to try to give our daughter the best opportunity at life we could and be there for her. And so my daughter was born in 2013. And that's kind of when that initial spark came to like, take it to the next level and make sure that I was going to become a pro and lay out that actual guideline pavement of like, this is the steps that I'm going to take to get there ASAP. Um, and my daughter was four months old. And all of a sudden I get diagnosed with uh osteosarcoma bone cancer so you were you were thinking okay so as a pro skater this is how you can support your family at 15 years old because there aren't a whole lot of other options for a yeah. 15 year old to to make the kind of money that you need to to support a family and then four months after your daughter was born your daughter Skylar mm -hmm. four months after she was born then you were diagnosed with cancer and what how, how did that come about? Were you, were you sore? How, how did they find the cancer? Yeah. And that's exactly right. Like I, I was like, okay, skateboarding will be an opportunity for me to, you know, provide for my family and worse comes to worse when I'm 18, I'll sign up for the military and go in and do that. And that was kind of my backup plan. And all of a sudden, you know, my knee started bothering me. I couldn't figure out what was going on. I thought that I maybe bumped at skateboarding and, you know, it was just bugging me from that. And after it lasted a couple months, um, my mom decided to take me to the doctor, went in to see my normal physician to get a checkup. And he started feeling around on my knee where I said I had the pain at. And he told me, you know, it feels a little weird. I just want to be sure um, to make sure, like, I give you the best options. I want you to go down to Children's um, in St. Louis and get a, an x-ray done. So I went down to Children's Hospital in St. Louis and I got x-rays and you know, an hour or two later, um, they call my name over the intercom and they're like, oh, no, Elliot, to the cam building across the street. And for me, I was like, I'm the coolest kid in here. They just said my name over the intercom. I thought it was so awesome. Um, they and, know who you know, I am. Yeah. yeah. And I was like, oh, this is sweet. And, you know, shortly later, I found out that it was everything but that. So went in and they told me that a team of doctors came in. They said, you have osteosarcoma bone cancer on your knee. Um, we believe this is what it is. We want to do a biopsy to make sure. And for me at the time, I had no experience with cancer. So I just said, let's get it over by Friday. I would like to go skateboard. <laughs> and uh, life took a crazy turn the next year. Wow. Now, did you believe going in that there could be something serious going on? Because like skateboarders are really tough, right? I mean, like you guys, you guys fall hard on the pavement 
get right back up. I mean, it's it's watching some of the X games. You think that guy could be dead, and he gets right back up, and he's right back in it. It's part of the it's part of the mystique of being a snowboard or a, a skateboarder, isn't it? That you just have to you fall hard, you get up, you keep going. Yeah, I mean, for me, it was kind of one of those things where I absolutely like you take slams left and right. And that's just a part of what it is of being a skateboarder and trying to progress through the curve of learning and skateboarding is you're constantly getting slammed. And for me, it was one of those things where I had to go ahead and, you know, build a high pain tolerance or kind of give up on skateboarding. And for me, skateboarding meant too much to where I didn't want to give up on it. So for me, it was just a normal thing of like, my knee's probably going to heal. You know, I bumped it, no big deal. Um, and that's kind of what it'll be. And uh, when I found out that it was much more serious than that is when it really took a turn. Um, and I realized kind of the severity of what was going on. So you were trying to go pro. You were really good at this. You were, you're doing well. You had, you had this girlfriend for two years, you said. And, and so, so what's going on? How did, how, how did you kind of end up in the, in the situation? Yeah. I mean, like like I said, it was kind of weird because the the diagnosis and it's the diagnosis in itself was a weird time for me because you know for skateboarding as a sport, you know you were talking a little bit about how people slam um, at X Games and I mean skateboarding is one of those sports that you really have to love it, otherwise you're gonna quit pretty pretty soon after starting because of the falls, you know, and for me it was kind of like build a high pain tolerance um, because of all the falls that I had because I love skateboarding so much. And uh, yeah, for me at the time, it was just my knee hurts. I'm sure it's going to heal. I've been hurt before. No big deal. Um, but when I went to that hospital room at the cam building in uh, downtown St. Louis and the team of doctors came in and my mom was there with me and they put these images up on the board and were explaining to me about this mass and tumor on my knee and that I had, most likely had osteosarcoma bone cancer, um, you know, it was all so surreal to me and I had no experience with cancer. So to me, it was just like, cool, let's wrap it up. I want to go skate. Let's move on with life. <laughs> um, and uh, when I looked over at my mom and saw her crying and, and saw the fear in her eyes is when it really started to sink in just a little bit to me about how serious the situation was. What were the doctors saying? You're saying, okay, you know, like, let's do whatever. If you have to give me a shot or I'll take a pill or whatever we need to do to get me back to my regular life. What were they saying? Yeah. I mean, it, now like looking back on it, it almost seems like theatrical or something because my doctor's name was Dr. McDonald. <laughs> and so Dr. McDonald is sitting there and he's telling me, he says, this is something that is going to change the next year of your life. Uh, my mom said, what does that look like? And he said, you're going out on crutches. You're no longer able to walk on your leg. Um, school is out of the question. Go home and pack your stuff. And you're moving into St. Louis Children's Hospital um, to undergo chemotherapy and get surgery in the next two days. Um, so it was like that. Were they worried about your life too? They were because they, they discussed how aggressive osteosarcoma bone cancer is and how fast it can spread. And so their immediate reaction was, let's get this done as soon as possible to figure out, make sure ultimately to confirm, is it osteosarcoma? And yes, if it is, we need to get started on chemotherapy immediately. And so 
I mean, it was two days later that I woke up from surgery and I had a Broviac catheter implanted in my chest and they were starting my blood work and chemotherapy of uh, doxorubicin, cisplatin, and methotrexate to start that chemotherapy process. Waking up from surgery, was this a biopsy or was this the amputation? So this was actually a biopsy done with put also with putting in a Broviac catheter into my chest. And so um, I had two tubes hanging out of my chest for the year. I lived in the hospital um, and that's how they underdid my chemotherapy treatments and also drew blood and took samples. Um, so they did the biopsy, had these two tubes in my chest and they got the confirmation uh, like 24 hours later and I started chemotherapy that then and there. So chemotherapy and are you thinking, okay, we're going to do this chemotherapy, which is not a whole lot of fun. I mean, it's, it makes you sick. They're pouring poison effectively into your body. But were you thinking, we'll do the chemotherapy that will solve the situation? Or were they talking about amputation at that point too? At that point, amputation was out of the question. They never even threw that on the plate. Uh, what, what they said was, this is... Um, the opportunity for us to save your life and save your leg. And if the therapy works, we should be able to do that. And you should be able to get back to skateboarding. Um, after undergoing a month of chemotherapy on November um, in 2013, I think it was November 21st or November 1st. It was one of those two dates. It's hard to remember. <laughs> but, um, yeah. So that's when I got my um, second surgery, which was actually a limb salvage surgery. They said, we have to try to save your leg. And because of where the cancer was, it was on my knee and also on my tibia bone. And so they did a total knee replacement and a tibia bone replacement with, with titanium. Um, and so then they took my calf muscle off my left leg, the leg that had the cancer in it, and they put it on the inside to protect all that um, reconstructive surgery that they did. Uh, and when I woke up from that surgery is kind of when I found out that I would no longer be able to skateboard, run, jump, or ride a bike ever again. Really? So this is it because of that surgery, but you still had your leg, but they said, that's it. You're never going to be able to do any of that, any, any of the stuff that you really love to do, like the big part of who you are. How did it end up progressing from there? You know, Chris, this is something that I think we've all experienced um, in our own stories and our own personal journeys. And you already said it right there a little bit. And that's when I had to really like dig deep. And yes, I was super young. I was 16 at the time. Um, it was just hit my 16th birthday. I found out about the cancer and then all this was going on. And that's when I started to realize that, you know, us as people associate who we are with what we do. And when you lose that, you're really questioning, who are you? And so I had to really figure out at that point, like, who am I truly? Who is Noah? And who am I going to be um, after this? And I think my biggest motivation at that time um, to get through everything was my daughter, you know, knowing that I had to survive, not because I needed to live, but because someone else depended on me to survive. Yeah. And that's, that is the case for a lot of people, right? I mean, if you're going to get healthy, you need the reason why you're going to get healthy. Were you seeing your daughter all the time? Was she coming into the hospital? Was she allowed to come into the hospital? I mean, how, how sterile did things have to be for you? Yeah, and you know, each case is different. Each cancer diagnosis, each um, situation and story is a little bit different. And for me, thankfully, I was able to have contact with my daughter here and there. Um, at first, it started off with my girlfriend and my daughter coming up to visit me. Um, 
as much as they possibly could, but being so young, you know, didn't have cars at the time. Um, there's a lot of different factors going in to play, um, you know, but they definitely came in to visit me as much as, uh, as much as they could, uh, around that same time, you know, mom, um, you know, my girlfriend at the time, we ended up splitting. There was a lot of different pressures on us. Not, not, not only being teen parents now, but also knowing the fact that dad could possibly die. And so, um, mom didn't really know what to do. So she, um, she jumped ship and, you know, she decided to take, take her own story somewhere else. Um, and so, um, my daughter was, taken care of by because I was undergoing so much treatment and I was on so many medications was taken care of by um, the grandparents on the mom's side and also by my mom um, when time needed so um, that's where Skylar spent a lot of her time was in the care of the grandparents while I was trying to survive this cancer and so so did you now I mean this is skipping ahead a little bit but but did you end up with custody of your daughter or is it yeah, shared or how does that work? Yeah. And I wish I could say it was done earlier than later, but I'm actually going through the process still right now. I am still under court paperwork, not even dealing with the mom. The mom has no rights to my daughter whatsoever. Uh, I'm in a situation where I'm battling the grandparents who are trying to say I'm not fit for some odd reason, which doesn't make sense to me. But um, I'm still in a court case right now with my daughter. My daughter does fully live with me um, in Colorado right now, which is a blessing and I love it and she's loving it. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's a crazy story for sure. And it continues on. And she's eight now, your daughter. My daughter's seven. She'll be eight here in February, which okay. unbelievable. It's coming up quick. <laughs> it's, it, yeah, she's growing and growing. But but to go back, I mean, you didn't even know if you'd be around for this. When did so so the progression of your of your illness of your cancer? When did it come to the critical mass where they said, "Okay, this is what we're going to have to do in order to save your life"? I would imagine, right? Yeah, and I'm well. It was weird because there was kind of a lot of like simultaneous like factors that led into play to me making the decision of getting my leg cut off. Um, the doctors never initially told me like, you have to get an amputation. So it was 2014. I got diagnosed in 2013 and I lived in the hospital for about a year undergoing chemotherapy um, in and out of the hospital and things. And during that time I overlapped into 2014 and I remember it so so specifically where I was in the bed, um, I was in and out of it. I was on a lot of medication and one of my nurses, uh, Luke, he was awesome. Um, he had this curly hair. He'd always grow it out and then shave it to donate to kids. Um, he was a great guy, super funny, but he would turn on the TV every once in a while and I have something uh, playing when I wake up and I actually got to wake up and see Sochi Paralympics on TV. Okay. Now this was the first step in changing my life. Okay. I witnessed three Paralympic snowboarders on Team USA, Evan Strong, Mike Shea, and Keith Gable sweep the poles winning gold um, for Team USA in snowboarding, coming to find out that they were all missing legs. Now, that's where my initial inspiration came from. Shortly after, um, one of my nurses came into the room and asked me, Noah, do you want to go to Colorado to be a part of a camp um, of kids with cancer in a group called the Sunshine Kids? And I said, absolutely. So I was taken to Steamboat Springs, Colorado, where I was able to 
not only meet other kids with the same kind of cancer as me, but also one of them named Brenna, who is on the snowboard team, who had the same cancer as me, but had already beaten it and had a prosthetic and was snowboarding. Right. So now I get out on snow with Steamboat Stars. I meet Brenna. I'm with the Sunshine Kids and I'm connecting dots. Uh, where, you who have your saw, leg at this point? I still right? had my leg at the time and I wasn't able to snowboard. Um, which was crazy because I wanted to so bad. I wanted to try it so bad. I had never snowboarded in my life, but I knew like with my skateboarding, that was something that I wanted to do one day, but I couldn't do it with my leg. And so, you know, stars was awesome. And they got me out on snow on a, on a ski bike at the time. And as soon as I went back home, I kept in touch with Brenna. And, um, shortly after I found out that I needed a second surgery because um, all the metal they put in my leg, my body was starting to reject. Okay. And so did you bring up the idea of amputation and had you kind of made peace with it personally? I personally, uh, I reached out to Brenna and asked her so many questions, every question under the sun that you could think of about what it was like to be an amputee, what she could do, what she couldn't do, um, if she had any regrets about it. And I also reached out to a few other amputees at that camp that I met also and asked them the same questions. And so for me, I had already made peace with that decision. And when the doctors told me, hey, you have 10 days to make a decision, surgery is scheduled, you know, you have, you, you got to make a decision. What are you going to do? I already knew what I wanted to do. And I said to them, I said, I want to amputate my leg. And they're like, well, like, we can always cut it off. We can't sew it back on, make sure that that's what you want to do. Um, and it was more, it seemed to be at that time, me more having to convince my family members and my mom and my grandpa that that was the right decision more so than me knowing that it was because I already had accepted that that was going to be my new life. And what was your decision-making? I mean, one, you'd seen all these people out in Colorado, you'd seen Brenna, but they also had told you, that you couldn't do all of these things. So, so what was your decision making? Was, was it, hey, I need to be active? That's actually a question nobody's ever asked me before. Um, that's awesome, dude. Good. <laughs> um, that's a great question. And I think for me, it, it truly was me trying to find myself. Like I felt that I had lost every part of me that I knew. And so for me, it was, I'm going to rediscover myself, but I'm going to be a new me and a better me. And for me, a life without sports, a life without activities wasn't Noah. And how was I going to get back to Noah? It was waking up from that surgery on January 30th when I was 17 years old with this new amputation and realizing that my life was going to be who I wanted it to be. And I was going to be me. How did you juggle all of this? So you'd missed a year of school effectively during your treatment you're still just 17. You have what now a two-year-old daughter. And, and, and I read that you made the decision that once you left the hospital, then you went to Utah to go, to go start snowboarding, to follow this dream. But you were talking about connecting dots. How are you connecting all of these dots of how, how you'd live uh, you know, as a grown-up at some point, how you'd finish your education, how you'd provide for your daughter. How did, how did, how did that decision come about? Yeah, I, 
so, you know, you mentioned it right there. I'd already missed school. And I was very lucky that a teacher that was actually retired and she was a substitute um, here and there, but her name was Mrs. Hollemeyer. And she was so amazing. She actually came into the hospital with me and helped me do work on days that I could. I, I honestly don't even remember seeing her half the time because of so much medication that I was on, but she would come in, teach me things. And, and I remember uh, my mom telling, telling the story all the time about how Mrs. Hallmeyer would talk to her and be like, he has no idea that I was here yesterday and that I went over all this textbook stuff with him. But when I give him the test, he's able to remember it and fill out the sheet. And it was super weird. And so somehow I was able to get a lot of work done then. And as soon as I was announced cancer free, and I was able to go back to school. I was in school and I was in the success campus at St. Charles High, um, which is a, a separate part of the school for kids who are under credits um, or have gotten in trouble and need help, extra help to graduate. And everyone at that school, all the teachers, all the staff really reached out and helped me and made sure that I was gonna be able to graduate. Um, and I ended up graduating um, on time and walking with my class. Um, so. It ended up working out perfectly. But at that time, I also had like, there was so many things going on at once, right? It was like this huge galaxy of stars. And I'm like, in the middle trying to go zigzag, zigzag. Um, but I, I was working as a dishwasher down at Tony's on top Main Street in St. Charles. Um, and I was also doing a GoFundMe page and doing speaking engagements to save up money so that I could move to Utah because I had talked to Brenna. I said, you're on Team USA. I see what you're doing. Um, you know, I just got my leg cut off. What should I do? Um, around that time, also, you know, I wanted to go back to Steamboat because that's where I, the first place I ever seen the mountains, and that's where I met everyone. And funny enough, I actually got invited to go back with the Sunshine Kids to Steamboat to try snowboarding after they found out that I cut my leg off so that I could try to snowboard. Um, so I went back. I met Erin, Erin Nimick. She was an Olympic border cross racer. Um, and she actually came out and I got to meet her and ask her questions and snowboard with her. And so that was another tool, another person that, um, really put life into me, um, to help me get there. So then I talked to Aaron, I talked to Brenna and I realized that Park City, Utah was the place for me to go because of the National Ability Center. They were a bigger adaptive center, um, and some of the resources that were out there with the Olympics being hosted there in 2002. As the way you describe it, it sounds like it's relatively simple. Like, okay, go through, I assume you were 17 years old when you, when you graduated. So mm -hmm. finish up school, try to find a way to raise some money and, and go to Utah. Was it, was it that simple? Was, was there, was there angst? Was there indecision? Was it, what am I thinking about at times? Yeah, a hundred percent all of that, all of that, you know, and some, I don't, it was crazy because, you know, I graduated, I was either 17 or 18. I can't remember what age I was. Uh, I think I was 17 though, but you know, I knew that it was going to take me time and I knew I had to plan it out and I got help um, with some ideas. You know, I was asking my mom, like, I'm seriously, I'm going to move to Utah and I'm going to do this. And she's like, well, you got to have a job. And so um, the first thing I did was looked up, you know, jobs in Park City, Utah. And I found one at Christie Sport. Um, and it was going to be a ski and snowboard uh, renter and tech for waxing and stuff. 
So I applied for it. I got the job before I ever moved. They're like, Hey, we want to hire you. Um, I knew it was going to take me another, you know, a couple months before I could get out there because I was still saving money. Um, still needed the snowboard leg. Um, and also I knew I wasn't going to be able to afford it. Just me. Um, and this is where, this is where it gets really tricky. Okay. So I was 19 years old by this point. Yeah. So one of my best friends, uh, growing up, he lived on the same street as I did. And I was able to talk to him and convince him like, Hey, the games, you know, Pyeongchang, South Korea in 2018 is a year and a half away. I need to move to Utah. I can't do it alone. Do you want to move to Utah with me? We can get you a job. We can share and split the funds on an apartment so that, you know, we can make it work. We'll go snowboard. I'll train and then I'll compete in Korea and win a gold medal. And he's like, you know, it took a lot of convincing. <laughs> Hold on a second here. Uh, so, so you got your leg cut off. You went to this camp in Steamboat. You learned, yeah. you, you started to, to, to snowboard. Yeah. And then you basically put the plan in place that you would go within a year and a half to win a gold medal. Yeah. Which is yeah. a relatively hard thing to do. Yes. <laughs> so, how, how's that working in, in, in your mind? What, what was the, what was the conviction? For me, the way I looked at it, and this is the way I still look at snowboarding, um, which is funny because, you know, I realized, I didn't realize until after the gold medal and after everything, how hard that actually is. Um, yeah. to, to me at the time, I looked at it as I know my capabilities as a skateboarder snowboarding is easier because the board strapped to my feet. I know where I was heading with skateboarding. I know I can do it with something that's easier. And that was the way I looked at it. And that was the way I pursued it. And every day that I went out on snow um, is that I was going to eat and breathe it and make sure that I could do it. So I got this job at Christie Sport before I ever left St. Louis. I convinced my friend that if we're going to do this, we're going to do it right. Now, we talked a little bit about like the back and forth. Am I going to really do this? Is, is this the right decision for me to make? And I talked with the grandparents and my mom about this. And I said, the last thing I want to do is bring my daughter, Skylar, out to a new place and somehow end up in a situation where I don't have enough money and have her with me. Um, would you mind watching her for this year and a half? And after I make the team, after I get a gold medal, I should have a career set up to where I can have her full time. And they told me, go for it. Really? If they, yeah. If they would have told me no, I would have stayed there. I would have been working in St. Louis still. I applied for at Boeing um, to work on airplanes and build airplanes. I would have been doing something like that. Um, or maybe still washing dishes at uh, Tony's on top. And if they would have told me no, that's what I would have did. I would have stayed there. But they told me, yeah. Okay. They said, go for it. And Did I they believe in you? Too? What, I mean, it's, they said, yes, go for it, but they, did they really believe in you? The grandparents on, no, not my mom, um, the other grandparents, they, were, they had a completely different outlook on why they were telling me to go. And that comes later into the story. But my mom is full-heartedly believed in me and my capabilities. And so did Tristan, my friend that I grew up with that I convinced to move to Utah with me. He 100% was like, dude, you got it. Like, he was sitting there watching all the videos. I mean, I I'd go over to his house, and we'd talk, and we'd hang out. And I would watch every replay of Sochi games, of World Cup para snowboarders, and I would study them all, the way they rode, 
what their strengths were, what their weaknesses were, who I would be competing against. And he was right there with me. And I mean, he got sick and tired of watching it. But for me, it was like, it was me studying what I knew I had to do and where I had to go. And, uh, and so I did it when we moved out there. I actually ended up going up to buy snowboard bindings because I didn't have them. I went to a snowboard shop that was at Park City Mountain called Bazookas. And I found out that they were hiring. Tristan did not have a point. He did not have a job at this point. So I'm like, take my job at Christie's and I'll apply here because I'll be closer to the mountain and on my lunch break, I can go and train. And so that's what I did. He took my job at Christie's that I initially got. And then I took this one at Bazooka's where I was able to go out on my lunch breaks and snowboard. The, the mental aspect of it's really important, right? If you're going to do something like this, if you're going to go and win a gold medal, you have to feel that you have a bit of an advantage, right? Mm-hmm. Some sort of a competitive advantage. And it sounds like that came from your, from your snowboarding or from your skateboarding background. Is that the way that you looked at it and said, hey, I am, mm-hmm. I have an advantage. Like these guys don't know what I know. They might be ahead of me in terms of time on snow, in terms of mileage. But, but is that the way that you looked at it? And how did that affect the next steps? Like the, the boxes that you had to check to be ready. 100%. Dude, you are killing the questions. These are great. <laughs> um, that is 100% on point. Like, and I never even realized that until you just brought that up. But I always looked at it as I do have an advantage. I. I know skateboarding's harder. I, I know how many snowboarders, and if I ask them to go, you know, skateboard in a bowl down at the skate park, they're not going to know how to. They're not going to know how to go and hit coping the way that I did. And so I looked at it as I know the body movements. I understand the complexity of it. And now it's just got to be checking off the boxes of how the edges work and how to glide and how to get faster on a race course. Uh, but also, I also looked at it in another way of I knew where I grew up. I knew that we were poverty. I knew that we didn't have a lot of money. And I knew that everyone else on that circuit were living in places that have more money. And so to me, I had more grit and I had more willingness and more commitment to go after it than some of these other people that they might not have. Um, and, and I knew that I also had something else that they didn't have. I had the drive of my daughter um, and me being a young parent needing to provide for her that I had that riding on, on me also. So there's a lot of pressure and a lot of different things pushing on me that I think gave me that extra boost to go the step further than anybody else was. But you, you thrived in that pressure, right? How were you, how were you able to thrive? Cause that's, that's the kind of pressure that, that can crush people. Yeah. <laughs> I think, I think there was a, there was a time somewhere along the line that I, I can't pinpoint where it was, but I had a conversation with myself where it was am I going to let this defeat me or am I going to let this drive me to success? And I studied, I looked up LeBron James. I looked up all these huge um, professional athletes and I would research their story. And I still do that today. It's people who you look up to, you have to understand their story and study them and where they went wrong, what they did right. And the way that they looked at things. Um, And that's what I think helped me understand that I could use it as an advantage and help it boost me, or I could let it, you know, way heavy on me and crush me. So how did the, how it's cause first you had to make the team, right? Yeah. And first you probably actually had to go to your first competition. I mean, one, you had to learn how to do it. Then you had to go to the competition 
And, and what, how did, how did that happen? Cause this is a short time period. Yeah. Yeah. It was a really short time period. I, um, there was a lot, I mean, again, like things kind of lined up perfectly without me even realizing they were lining up perfectly at the time. When I got on snow, I remember going into my ticket office um, at Park City Mountain to pick up my pass that Bazookas was giving to me for being an employee. Mm-hmm. I walked in there and the first guy I see is a super tall dude, dreadlocks, super awesome. And the first thing I said was, dude, I love your dreadlocks. You're super rad. <laughs> and he reminded me of home because a lot of my friends back home had dreadlocks. And so I was like, dude, I'm digging your style already. And come to find out his name was Chris and he worked at the National Ability Center. So it was perfect because I had already signed up online for lessons with the National Ability Center. Now I'm meeting this guy named Chris at the ticket office. I'm stoked on meeting him. He's super cool. You know, I pick up my pass. I walk out. He goes in to the NAC. He's like, yo, I just met some kid. He's missing a leg. And he said he signed up with us. He's going to come ride. And like a week or two later, I get put out on my first lesson with him. So, and he was my instructor. Perfect. You know, um, so it kind of started with me getting on snow and trying to dial in my prosthetic settings. About two and a half weeks of me being on snow, a Team Semper Fi camp came to Park City and they were doing stuff with the National Ability Center. And I talked to them and I said, hey, I would love to ride with these wounded warriors and all these people who served our country um, but are now out here snowboarding with a disability. I want to be there and ride with them. And they let me do it. And along with that, I met another Paralympic snowboarder who I saw on TV, which was Keith Gable, um, and another developmental coach. And they saw me ride, and they're like, how long have you been on snow? And me, at that point, it was only like two, two and a half weeks, and I was keeping up with them. And so that's when they were like, you have a shot at this. And, and so that's the, I mean, you already knew it. Did you tell when you talked to Chris, when you had your first lesson, did you tell him your plan? Like, Hey, let's get this lesson thing going. Cause I've got places, I've got places to go. I've got things to do. Did you tell him, let him in on the whole, <laughs> whole strategy? I did. I definitely did. And I, and I told him, I said, you know, this is my goal. I want to go to Korea in 2018. And he's like, okay, like if that's your goal, like let's try to do it. And I think at first, you know, he's probably been alongside a a lot of people who come into it and uh, may say something like that and realize that, like, we need to step back to basics first and work our way up. But I think with me, when he started to see my progression and he started to, to hang out with me more and get more time with me, he started to realize that maybe I wasn't as far off as it sounded. And was this 2016 or 2017? This was 2017. 2017. So, so you're saying next year, yeah, I want to go to Korea and I want to win a gold medal. This is, this is my plan. How can, and was he on board with helping you sort of construct the way to get there to help you out? They were totally on board. Um, it was Chris and Colton. They both stepped in and they kind of like uh, were my two instructors that spent time with me out on the hill with the NAC And those were the two dudes that were always like telling me like, dude, you got this, you got this. Like, let's go out and let's figure it out. Let's go bomb a run. Let's see how fast you can go. And shortly after that, um, I met Graham Watanabe um, just riding around the mountain at Park City because he was living in Utah. 
And uh, I found out he was the assistant coach on the U.S. Paralympic snowboard team. And uh, he said, hey, you got to go to nationals. Colt and Chris said, you got to go to nationals. Gable was like, you got to go to nationals. And uh, that was kind of the next step. With the equipment, how did that work? Because, because your, your walking leg is different than your snowboarding leg. Were you able to pick up? Because we have, we have talked to Mike. Uh, we've talked to Mike and to, and to Brenna, so Mike Schultz and Brenna. So, so we know a bit about the, uh, about the snowboarding leg. But, but when did that happen? When did you go from sort of like the prosthetic that you have to a sport-specific prosthetic? I actually started from the beginning with it because when I went to Steamboat and I was riding around on my walking leg for two days, um, I knew that I was limited in what there was. And that's when I sent Brenna a message, hey, what do you use for snowboarding? And she, I sent her some research I had done on two different prosthetics. And she's like, I use this one because of X, Y, and Z. And this one comes with a foot. And I said, okay, sweet. So that's the one I'm going to go for. My, this, this, this worked out perfect because um, they're very expensive. As you know, adaptive equipment is very expensive. And for me, I had this GoFundMe going before I ever left St. Louis. And my prosthetic guy that I was seeing um, in St. Louis was like, I told him my dreams. I told him my goal before I ever left. And he's like, okay, I will do my best to try to get it passed under your insurance. It never goes through. Don't get your hopes up. And I, he was able to get it approved, but there was like a copay of like $3,000 or something crazy, um, which was insane for him to even get it like approved in the first place. And, uh, so that's what the GoFundMe was originally for was to make sure that I had all that I needed to help try to cover that copay. And it worked out. So I had the snowboarding leg before I ever got to Utah. So when I got to Utah, it was just trying to dial in that sports specific prosthetic. Wow. So you were, you were, you were set up. I mean, you really were set up as far as equipment. Now, how did you, how did the first race go? Yeah, man. Nationals. So nationals was, my so nationals first was your first race. First race ever. Yeah. Um, I went to nationals and I placed fourth, uh, on my first time ever on a border cross course, I, I ran it and placed fourth. And that's when Graham pulled me aside and Graham said, cause Graham Wananabe was there and he said, okay, what are your goals? And that's when I told him the same story I've been telling everyone else. Like, I'm going to go to Korea. I want to compete. And he said, okay, is, if that's really your goal, number one, do you have a passport? And I'm like, no, I don't have a passport. <laughs> and so he said, step one, get a passport. So that was step one. And then he said, step two, you have to get money to go to New Zealand uh, for the World Cup in August. And so that was the next goal is how do I save up money? Now this is the next, the next chunk to try to save up to go to a whole new country, leave the U.S. for the first time and uh, go get some good results. And you weren't named to the team yet, though, either, were you? I wasn't named to the team at all. I was still just a, a snowboarder who was training with the NAC, um, who Graham saw potential in and said, I want to help pave that road for you. And he did. He went out of his way. Anytime I call him, he'd answer the phone and help me if I had a question. Which is super helpful to have that kind of a resource because coming into a new world, you have no idea what you're supposed to do, where you're supposed to go. Why did he say New Zealand specifically? Because he knew that with the World Cups on the schedule for that year, I mean, that was the first World Cup of the games year. 
So he knew that with me coming in with no points, you know, never being on, you know, my first time ever on a course was nationals. He knew that I needed to get more time on a race course and more time in the element and points to qualify if I was actually going to qualify to make the games team. And uh, so what I did is I actually, Colton got me a speaking engagement um, shortly after with um, this construction company so that I could get money um, for international travels. I had saved up. I worked at the NAC that summer to save money so that I could go to um, New Zealand. And I showed up in New Zealand. Graham told me where they'd be staying in Wanaka. I got a hostel. Um, I originally had plans to bunk up with another developing athlete, but that fell through. Um, some, some of the U.S. team members helped me out get a hostel. I got this hostel. Uh, and that's really what, what made it work. And I was staying at this hostel. They had this um, bench out back, and I brought my own iron and wax, and I was waxing my snowboard out on their table in the back of this hostel in uh, New Zealand. Um, and that was my first World Cup experience, and I competed. Um, and my first World Cup, I won golden. Did you really? So what did that do for your ranking? You're talking about the points, which effectively is like your – your world ranking that affects your world ranking. What did that do for where you sat in the world? And, and also with potentially making the team, did you make the team after that too? Or So I knew after talking to Graham and realistically the goals that I was setting for myself were so high that I knew that in order to get there, I had to either get a first or a second at every world cup that whole winter. It's like that, that's, I knew that that was, gonna be there and that was kind of my options and so when I got that first gold you know it was like oh my god I couldn't believe it because like I remember getting to the bottom and Schultz was there too racing with me and uh Mike was at the bottom and he's like good job bud you just won and I'm like wait what really and he's like yeah you won and I'm like no way like okay because the whole the night before I remember saying to myself I'm gonna win tomorrow I'm gonna win tomorrow I'm gonna win tomorrow and I've been saying that for months and yet I'm standing there in front of the scoreboard and I'm like, I really won. Like, okay, all right. But then I had that, you know, five minutes of stoke and awesomeness. And then it was back to reality of, okay, where am I at? What are the goals? What do I need to get back to? So standing on my first World Cup podium, it was like, awesome. Let's do tomorrow now. First World Cup podium in your second race ever. Yeah. So that's, that's fairly amazing to say the least. What, was there a part of you at any point that thought, well, this is, this is too easy? No. no, no, no. And I think it never felt easy because I think of all these different factors that were weighing on me that were pushing me to be the best that I could. Um, and nothing in life comes easy. And so I, I realized that and I knew that. And, and so I remember right after I won the first World Cup, there was another World Cup the second day after it in New Zealand. So there was two World Cups back to back. So I won the first one. I was excited, you know, okay, awesome, cool. Back to serious game mode. Um, Lane was there. He was one of the Team Utah coaches. And I remember him. He was like, congratulations. Either he was there. He might have sent me a text. I think he sent me a text. But he was like, awesome, great job, do it again tomorrow. And uh, that was another reminder of like, yeah, like we are on this mission and this is something that I got to do. And so the next day I had another World Cup, my second World Cup. Um, 
and I felt pressured to do the same thing that I did the day before. And lo and behold, I did it and it worked out. <laughs> and I was like, this is awesome. Wow. And so then you kept going through and had these kinds of results throughout the World Cup. Mm -hmm. When did you find out that you'd made the team? Because that's a fairly big step to be able to get to Pyeongchang. When did that happen? Yeah. So Graham had told me and Jess had told me they were helping the NAC a little bit. If the NAC would reach out, I would reach out. Okay, I need to go to this World Cup. When can I make the team? you know, trying to figure out the points and what the eligibility was and how I could qualify to make the team. But also they're like, okay, we're going to go here. This is where the team's staying. You could probably book something here, you know, and meet up with us at some point and we might be able to help you. So I kind of had, um, I never fully made the team until two weeks before Korea. So I was never named to the team until the games team was named. And that's when I was brought on to the U.S. Paralympic snowboard team. Up until that point, they allowed me to, after New Zealand, when the next World Cups were coming around in Europe, they allowed me to kind of trail along and meet up with them um, and train with them. But I had to pay um, different fees and separate things because I was not on the team. Was there a thought in your mind that they might still not name you to the team, even though you had these results, maybe because you're a young guy or whatever, you know, you're new to the sport. Was there a worry for you? Honestly, no, I think I believed in myself so much and I believed in my results so much and that I was putting in everything that I possibly could so much that I was like, there's no way they're going to say no. Like I'm beating all the other people. How are they going to tell me? No, like they, they want to win medals. Like they want to, they'll take me. <laughs> and uh, th that's the way I was looking at it. And looking back on it, I know realistically that was definitely a part of the question. They could have been like, sorry, like you're very new. We want to take somebody who's had more race experience. And, uh, but to me at the time, maybe it's just because I was so young and wasn't thinking it that way. I was just like, no way they won't take me. Um, so, yeah. So, okay, so you get there. So that I'm assuming that this is not your second international trip. You've done some international trips for some World Cups, right, to, to get to the team? Uh, yeah, so I had already traveled to New Zealand was the first one, first time ever leaving the country. Love that place. Um, Finland, Longgraf, actually, Longgraf at Snow World in the Netherlands was my second. Then Finland was right after. Canada was in there and then after when we were in Canada at Big White we went down to the Big Lodge and Graham pulled all the athletes in and Cody Cody was on our assistant coach at the time Graham had been put to um, the main race coach for the team and that's when they said hey we're going to announce the Paralympic team that's going to Korea and so then that was it then you were you were on the team you flew to Korea what was that like? The, the pomp and circumstance of the opening ceremonies, all those things. So amazing. So amazing. I, I remember I found out, I'm like, like they said, they announced the team and I was just like, yes, <laughs> like so pumped, dude. I, I was so stoked. And that, that, that was the excitement that lasted the time, the duration to get ready to fly to Korea. And when we got to Korea, I was so excited and so goofy and everyone on the team at that time knows and will tell stories about me traveling internationally because I never had before. 
um, everything was so new to me that like I was having so much fun. Like I was ordering things completely wrong, but was so confident and excited about ordering it. Um, and we showed up and that's when it got much bigger is when I actually got to see how big team USA is and how many athletes are on the team. And I got to meet some of the Paralympic skiers and I got to trade stories with them and realize the vastness of the team. Um, it was amazing. And being a part of that, I mean, you, you know, you've been to it. Opening ceremony is just exhilarating, man. You're just like hearts pounding. Everything's excited. Was there, was there an opportunity to look back a moment of reflection of, you know, I mean, what you've gone five years, you were 20 when you went to Pyeongchang and you were 15 with this year that totally pushed you in an entirely different direction or a couple of different directions. What was the reflection like? The reflection actually didn't come until months after I had come back from Korea and already won the medals because uh, when we were sitting at the opening ceremony and as soon as they lighted the flame, that was like, I remember thinking to myself, like, now the game's really on. Like, now is the time to get serious. Like, I thought that up until that point, it was hit or miss. But as soon as I was there in the opening ceremony, the lights went on, the flame was ignited. Like, it was like, okay, it's showtime, and I'm going to win, and I'm going to do everything I can. And the reflection didn't come until months later when I was sitting at home. I had visited Children's Hospital with my medals, uh, going back to see all the kids. I had spoke at so many different schools trying to share my story to help other kids see it's possible. Um, and when it really started to hit me and I realized like, wow, that, that was insane. When you moved into the start, cause this is the big deal, right? I mean, it's like you, you said, I'm going to go here. I'm going to win a gold medal and you're moving into the start. What were you thinking in the start? Did you think at all about your daughter? Did you, did you think about the other stuff or, or, or were you just thinking about your job? I think it was different both days. For border cross, it was, I was, I was thinking about, I mean, there was a lot of things going on in the border cross day. But border cross day, I was just thinking about giving it my all, making sure that I could get down the course the best. Um, and I walked away with a bronze medal that I was worked so hard to get. Um, I had bought a board off one of the Australian members, my first race board. I bought off the Australian members and it was from when he was very young. So it was narrow and my feet were much bigger than that. <laughs> and with the snow conditions, um, I ended up actually going down because I, I tilted it too high on edge, went down. And so that took me into the small final, which was for third or fourth. And uh, that bronze, I remember I got to the bottom and KJ, our high performance director, looked at me and he said, get back in it. You know what to do. I was like, got it, Kevin. And I get back up there. And at that point, I was so mad at myself for going down that I was like, like, there was no question. I was racing myself. And so I, I, I went out of the gate and that's when I got my bronze medal and I was so stoked about it. But then I went back to, that wasn't a gold. That was an amazing achievement. And that was a bronze medal. That's huge. But I came here to get a gold and I have another chance at it. Um, so that bank slalom day when I was at the top of the course, I had family, 
And that's, I guess that's when a little bit of the reflection came into play where I started to think about everything it took to get me there. And I realized that I had to win this. And uh, I came across the finish line. And as soon as I did, and I looked up at the board, my time was the fastest all day. There was three time trials and uh, nobody had beaten any of my other two times. And on my third one, my third run, my last run, I actually beat my own time. And uh, for that, to me, it was um, inspiring and, and realizing that I just did it, but also that I can breathe now. <laughs> yeah, because you put yourself so far out there with this goal. Was, was your daughter there? So none of my family was in Korea. Um, okay, I thought you said family was there. No. Okay. No, in my mind and in my heart, absolutely. Okay. okay. Now equipment, can we talk just a little bit about equipment? Because you talked about, you use, use Mike's leg, right? So BioDAP yeah. leg for snowboarding, which is the leg to use. I mean, like all the top guys in the world basically are using it. Uh, Mike said he doesn't necessarily give you guys all the stuff that he gives himself, right? So, so yeah. You <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but you also said about, your snowboard that you bought a secondhand snor snowboard from an Australian, but now you're working with winter stick, right? Yes. Yeah. And so, so winter stick, can you describe what winter stick is? I mean, like the history of it and why it's so important to you and, and your success. Absolutely. Winter stick overall as a brand is in my opinion one of the coolest brands outside of just even snowboarding just brands in general one of the coolest because of the way that they look at their product and what they're doing um, everyone who works there is very good people they're all driven by the love of the sport and the love of the company and i think that right there speaks a thousand words for itself it's like they put every ounce of passion and sweat and tears into making their boards to where I want to ride anything else and outside of that they're one of the very first snowboard companies ever like like they are the original snowboard um winter stick was out they had boards coming out Dimitri was making these pow surfboards what it was is how can I surf the mountains of powder and uh taking a surfboard design and turning it into a board that you could ride on the snow and that was the very first winter stick and they said they preceded Burton by five years is that right yes exactly yeah but they also, they build specialty boards, like each board, and they build skis as well. Each one, I mean, they talk about like making a panini, right? That, that they're putting all these, all yeah. these different things into it. But to, to serve your purposes, what are your purposes that are different than, than a regular snowboarder? What do you need? Yeah, so for a race setup, uh, you know very well, but for people who don't know, like, you definitely need different dynamics. You need a certain type of base material. You want a certain build for your riding style and your comfort level and, like, what your preference is. Uh, and you also need a company and a board or a product or a ski that you feel confident in on. And for me, Winter Stick was exactly that. They were more than willing to customize anything that I wanted to exactly the way I wanted it. And for me personally, it was, I wanted a skateboard that was playful, that was a snowboard. So I said, I want to take a fun park riding board that you would take a snowboard out in the park with and turn it into a race board, essentially. And 
and that's pretty much how I build my snowboards is because I want it to be just like I'm out there skateboarding, but I'm just on a snowboard on the mountain. Is, is your prosthetic, does that require any, any specific differences like tip softer than the tail or tail softer than the tip or is that something that goes into it as well? Absolutely. And I folded a lot of noses on snowboards because um, I can't feel necessarily how much pressure I'm putting into the actual prosthetic foot because I'm cut off at the knee. And so I feel the knee really well and the pressure in the knee, but I'm not sure 100% about my foot pressure. So with me, when I'm leaning into it and really cranking on my prosthetic that's in the front of the board, um, I have broken snowboard noses and gone over and uh, it's not very fun, but <laughs> so I'll make the nose a little stiffer, you know. So that's what you do is you say, okay, look, this is what I need to do. And I'm sure they're really accommodating. How did this relationship come about? This relationship was another thing that was like a couple factors leading into an amazing relationship being built. Um, I was out on a chairlift. I love to talk. Um, I'll talk to anybody forever. <laughs> and um, I was out on a, on a chairlift at Snowbird in Utah. And I met a guy named Mark Winkler. And he was so cool. Just hopped on a chairlift with him. It was a powder day, you know, like a foot of snow. And I'm super pumped. I look over, I'm like, dude, your board is so awesome. And it was a surfboard on snow. And he's like, oh yeah, this is a winter stick. That was my first introduction to winter stick. And he's like, oh my God. Like, I, I was just so fascinated in the board and the history of them. He was telling me all about it. He pulled out some stickers, handed me winter stick stickers. I slapped them on my board and I kept in touch with them. And we got to ride the rest of the day powder together. Um, after that, he mentioned my name to winter stick. And shortly after, um, our coach that came on board was Alex Tuttle, and he was a rider who grew up ripping board across with Seth Westcott, who was a sponsored athlete of Winter Stick. So the things were kind one of, of the falling. owners too, right? Seth is one of the owners. Yes. Okay. Exactly. So there was a lot of things falling into place. And so when I told Tuttle about the winter stakes and how stoked I was, and I found out he had a relationship, I said, I want to build two border cross boards from winter stick and race them. And that's what I did. And I raced the whole world cup season on a winter stick. I won a world title on their board. And uh, shortly after that, I got the full final connection um, and pieces were together. And they said, Hey, we want to sponsor you and become our first adaptive sponsored athlete. And it sounds like they're actually really excited about it. You're front and center on their website. It doesn't always happen that way. So that's a, that's a really cool thing. You, I assume are planning for Beijing 2022. I mean, you will have a wealth of experience compared to what you had going into <laughs> 2018 and four years of experience. But things are changing a little bit, aren't they? With regard to classes where, where they're combining some of the classes. Can you tell us what, what's happening with the classes in, in, Beijing, in uh, Beijing? Yeah, so things are changing um, rapidly. And I mean, we all know this world today with the COVID-19 and everything, there's a lot of changes happening. Um, as far as Beijing and the games coming up, absolutely, I'm going there. I'm going to compete. That is my plan. Um, I plan to go in there and absolutely have more experience than I ever did. So I should be very well off. Um, and I'm excited to compete and I'm excited to get out there. Uh, with the classes being merged, I am not sure 100% where it finally lies or where it will be set at. I know there's talk that um, women's LL1 and women's LL2 will be combined. Um, Can you describe what those are, LL1 and LL2, please? 
Yeah, absolutely. So LL1 is a classification that I race in for men and what Brenna would race in for women's. And the best way for me to under, like explain that to somebody, the easiest, simplest way is you think about it as like someone who's missing two joints, a knee and a foot or both their knees um, or I mean both their feet, um, like a bi bilateral BK or an above the knee amputee, they would race together and they would be in the LL1. So it's somebody who is more physically disabled or missing two joints of their body. For LL2, which is funny because of numbers, but um, LL2 would be somebody who's like a, a below the knee, who's just missing a foot on one side, and somebody who is the least disabled um, would race in that class. So that would merge Brenna, per se, with all the other girls in LL2 um, uh, together to race for China, um, which... Brenna slays it. Absolutely. Like I, I have hundred percent confidence in her, um, in her abilities, um, as, as well as me. So I think, I think for that aspect, you know, I, I hope that we get more females in the sport. I'm constantly reaching out to people and trying to engage relationships to bring more people into our sport. Cause that's what we need. If there was a little bit more females, um, in LL1, Brenna would have her own class in China. Right. And so you don't know for sure how that's going to work. And, and, and there is an advantage, really, where you're talking about above-the-knee amputee versus below-the-knee amputee, having a knee and, and having the, the ability to manipulate your prosthetic in a far more profound way, which also translates into power on the board. I mean, you watch some of these, these below-the-knee amputees walk around, and you wouldn't even know. You wouldn't yeah. even you know. You, could, you know, is it the left foot or is it the right foot? And oftentimes you can't even know. So, so it's a big difference, but are you still bringing in that same sort of mentality that you, that you have an advantage even if they combine the classes? I think so. I think even if the classes are combined, I'm still going to go into it with the same mentality that I've built up over the years. Um, and I think the mentality is really just self-confidence and believing in myself and, and my work ethic and believing that everything I'm doing, I'm putting in the right amount of work and I'm doing what I need to be doing and I believe I can do it. Um, and I think that's, you know, it's good for sport. It's good for those things. And um, by no means am I uh, trying to be cocky or anything by saying that that is just the way my brain thinks. Um, and that's the way that I'm trying to, to approach things. Um, but, but yeah, I think that, um, I would do pretty good even if the classes were merged. You, you've gone a long way. You've come a long way in a really short period of time. I assume you're, you're having a good time doing it, but you also said that, that your daughter is the one you, you were doing this for her, but you said that she also teaches you more than anything, anybody else. What does your daughter teach you? Dude, she teaches me, number one, being a parent is the coolest thing you can ever do. So I definitely highly recommend it when people are ready to have kids to do it <laughs> because it is so cool. It's so awesome looking into them and it's like looking into your other half because it is. Um, it's super awesome. But she's personally taught me Number one, um, how to be the best me I can be, how to fully drive uh, myself to be better. And it gives me something to look at and realize that I have tons of room to grow because watching her grow reminds me how much I have to grow and where I have to go um, and how I can, it makes me want to learn. It teaches me, you know, 
how to want to learn again because I want to be better parent. I want to be better for her. And uh, it keeps me thinking about how to be a better person. Wow. That's awesome. And what is, so what does that mean though? You know, in the sense of like, to be your best, to be your best you, do you have, do you have a vision of, of what that is? Does she help you or, or sort of, you know, make the path more obvious for you? How does, how does that come about and where are you trying to go? Yeah, she absolutely makes the path a lot more obvious for me because at the end of the day, what matters most is not titles, it's not medals, it's not sponsors, it's the relationships and family that you have and the people you trust and really care about. And for me personally, um, she reminds me of that every single day. Um, I'm on the road right now. We discussed a little bit ago before we hopped on live with Facebook, um, some things going on right now. So and for me, I'm on the road, we've been training, and I get to video call with her every single night, and it's amazing. Um, and I can't wait to get back to Colorado and be with her. Um, so I'm excited there. The vision's absolutely there, and it's always growing and becoming better and better. That's awesome. Well, will, will she go with you to Beijing? Is that the plan? Absolutely. So you really better perform now. Oh, yeah, for sure. Got to. Noah, thank you so much for joining us. I mean, it's just been really cool to learn about your journey, to learn about your vision of what you're trying to do, but also how much you're giving back to other people, how much hope you're giving to the sport. And, and I'd imagine to your daughter, I don't think this is a one-sided relationship. I'd imagine you're teaching her a fair amount as well. Yeah. Thank you so much, man. Uh, thank you for your time. And uh, you're awesome. You're definitely an inspiration for all of us in the sport. Um, you do a lot. And uh, thank you for giving me the opportunity to share my story more. Thanks a ton. All right. And good luck. Go fast. And we'll look for you on television. Sounds good.